We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy who have always existed and presumably always will exist uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am delighted to welcome to the program David Green Ockle, who is a pastor, high school teacher and lecturer who holds master's degrees in education from Graz College in Philadelphia and comparative religion and Hebrew from Hebrew University in Israel. And he uh, has a passion for studying the humanities not just for their own sake, but because he believes that they can help us understand our human condition in this modern context and give us a vision of what a restored humanity might look like in this world of commerce and distraction. David lives in the northeast segment of the United States with his wife and two daughters. David, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be uh, on the show. It's uh, very good of you to agree. I mean, I heard you speaking with a friend of yours, Josh Wisely, uh, of the Eschaton podcast. Of course, as we've just been saying off air, uh, he, he was on this show with us uh, a few weeks back. And um, I heard you having this conversation on the subject of the pursuit of pleasure in the digital age. And I was particularly taken with that conversation. I thought there were lots of interesting ideas in there lots of thought-provoking ideas as well and um, some of those connect with various things that we've discussed on the mind renewed in the past so i was particularly keen to pick your brains about those kinds of ideas today so thank you very much for coming on so we're, we're actually going to be talking about technology um largely communication technology and how that not only relates to us as, as human beings using that technology but how that technology shapes us in terms of what we do, how we behave, how we think, if you like, how communication technology turns us from homo sapiens into a kind of homo technologicus. I don't know, that's a real word, but it came to mind. <laughs> what that means for our future and for our children's future, our children's children's future, um, which I guess all comes under the heading of media ecology, as I put it in the schedule notes. Um, but we'll get on to that shortly. Um, first, though, would you tell us a bit more about yourself, David? What is your background and why are you doing the kinds of things, you know, the kinds of jobs that you're doing? Yeah, so uh, my background is uh, one where, you know, I come from a, a house of faith. I actually uh, grew up in a congregation that was really big on trying to understand the historical roots of Christianity or the Hebraic roots of the faith. Um, so that took my family and also myself on some really interesting journeys in trying to pare down, you know, where does Christianity really come from and what's the most authentic or organic version of that. Mm. And so that journey really eventually took me to Jerusalem, Israel, uh, after getting an undergrad degree in education. I, I didn't feel like it was quite time at the age of 22 to become a teacher uh, <laughs> to do that good. for the next 30, 40 years. So yeah. So um, I went over to Israel, spent three years there studying um, a master's degree in, as you said, in comparative religion and Hebrew. And when I was there, you know, just in such a chaotic environment as the, uh, as they say in Arabic, the uh, uh, Antifata was going on, the great shaking or essentially terrorist activities were really heightened. And it really just dawned on me how important it is to restore our humanity, to understand different people's cultures and perspectives in order to come to a resolution of some sort and, and bring forth, uh, well, greater peace. And with that being said, you know, I came back to the States, started teaching in, uh, in high school where I, you know, believed that, you know, a lot of this can begin. And through it, I really, it was interesting how it worked. I became a teacher right at the time when a lot of this social media stuff really started to pick up. 2006, the, around that time was the really first use of the iPhone uh, and the smartphone and then Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat now just started to unroll. And so, you know, the way I, I kind of look at it is I believe that those of us that are teaching the young in education, I always call teaching uh, the prophetic voice. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is we really get to see where our culture and where our humanity is going in another 20, 30 years by looking at these kids now. And well, <laughs> it's kind of daunting and, and kind of scary to see where we're going and where the world's going to be 20, 40 years from now when these kids are the leaders. Um, not necessarily all negative. There is some positive things in it. Um, but you really get to see where we're going to be going. So I've become very passionate about it because I see the power of it. And my concern is I don't believe we are doing an adequate job in one, discussing it, seeing it, and then teaching the young and teaching even ourselves uh, how to appropriately use this new medium appropriately. So hence the, you know, the idea of media ecology. Yes. So you do, I think when you were speaking to Josh, you said that you do actually teach some of this to your students at the high school, but you also teach in some kind of college context and you're a pastor as well. How does all that fit together in your life? And do you share these kinds of ideas with everybody in all those contexts? Yeah, I do the best that I can. I mean, as an adjunct professor at a time, I was teaching um, economics. And so there's a lot of things that we can do with the notion of, um, you know, the science of economics, of obtaining our needs and wants to the use of scarce resources. For example, you know, I would have conversations and, and lectures in class at the university uh, in terms of the most scarce resource that we have, and that is time. Uh, and time as a, a holy function. And in public school, you know, we, in, in America, I'm sure same as the UK, you know, there's this separation of faith in the public square. Um, but, you know, we don't have to necessarily go forward with a Christian perspective in the public school. But, you know, the notions of the spirit, of the consciousness, of the mind I think is being uh, hijacked by this technology. So, you know, a big thing that I would do, I teach uh, mostly American history. And uh, what I'll do is, when we get to the digital age, you know, beginning in the 80s, really, with uh, with the growth of computers and then the 90s with the growth of uh, Internet, you know, we have these discussions of where are you guys going to be in the future? What is it doing to us for our civil liberties and really, I would argue, more importantly, for our humanity? And so that's kind of how I do that. And from the pulpit, you know, it's always an important thing to, to get ourselves grounded and say, all right, how far away are we removed from the garden experience and how much of this is good, how much of this is bad? And uh, let's see how we can go forward restoring our humanity, um, because in a faith based kind of perspective, you know, I think as the world gets crazier and crazier, uh, when we stand on what it means to be a true human, opposed to what I say a human doing. Um, which I think is the evolutionary jump that we've made. The world is going to want the answers of what does it really mean to be a human being. And I think that can only happen when we receive the breath of God, as it says in Genesis, right? He breathed his breath into the, the Adam, into the, the mud and gave life to man. Um, so that's kind of the take that I, uh, that I go with it. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, we've talked uh, with a lot of people actually about transhumanism, uh, mostly, I think, with Josh, actually. And that does seem to be one of the logical conclusions of rejecting a transcendent basis to what it means to be human. Um, because obviously, if you have no center, no integration point for your humanity that's beyond just the flux of this world, then why not believe yourself to be such that you can be augmented by uh, technology? After all, there's no you to preserve is there you might as well be <laughs> unified with the Borg and have all these <laughs> fantastic abilities but from our perspective we would say perhaps lose your humanity um we'll get into that kind of thing no doubt in a few minutes but um let's pin down this term media ecology which i mentioned at the beginning this of course is a very famous phrase associated with people like marshall McLuhan and neil postman but Perhaps we could have a definition of it that is the kind of thing that you would work with anyway. What would your definition of media ecology be? Yeah, well, I would break it down. A lot of people assume that media is going to be essentially digital or print, right? So how do we get information? News media, digital media online, television. Uh, but McLuhan and Postman, but really McLuhan, um, he discusses media more in sense of invention, uh, new devices. And so that could be the printing press, that could be the computer, but it also can be other 
inventions that mankind has brought forth, a car, a light bulb, the heater, the air conditioning, Mm. um, any of those types of devices that are created would be in his scope what we're talking about with media. Although he spends a lot of time discussing what we generally believe to be media, uh, the information piece. Ecology uh, being how humans interact with the natural environment around them. So what I do with this is how does our invention our discovery interact or impact us and then how do we impact those inventions and essentially how is it interacting and in fact i believe changing us for the good but also for the bad and so that's my kind of working man's uh, colloquial definition of uh, media ecology mm. I think it's very interesting what you said with Josh, because you said that you feel that there is um, a very deep issue going on in the culture with respect to this media technology that is often ignored. Certainly in the alt media, we tend to be very concerned with issues to do with privacy, um, the big news about the NSA and uh, here in in the UK, of course, uh, GCHQ collecting all our information or indeed the government asking various uh, private businesses to collect information which they can have access to for 12 months and all that kind of thing. Um, And we can be very hot under the collar and rightly so about these kinds of concerns. But you were saying that you think actually there are some media ecological issues which tend to be ignored, which in many ways are more insidious are more important and hidden and we really need to emphasize those and they're not being emphasized enough could you explain what that kind of concern is and why it's so important yeah so obviously i don't have everything figured out and i think the alt media that's discussing the big name items i think it's all appropriate to discuss but the way i kind of look at it is is could it be a type of like Don Quixote's tilting at windmills, that these are the uh, the paper dragons, if we will, that we're going after, but that there's actually a deeper issue that is plaguing us that we are not paying attention to. And that would be the technology at what I call the subversive level. Subversive being like that this technology is, is seeking or intending to subvert an established system or institution. I would say that established system or institution is, is a sense, our humanity. Um, so I feel like we're not necessarily paying attention to it. And if we break down various inventions, we can see that there is a change that is happening There is what I call a philosophical change that is being implemented, but the thing that we are not paying attention to is what I would call the subversive change that is very subtle, that is underlying, that we're not really paying attention to, and I think that's the one that we have to pay most attention to. So to use the the Don Quixote image there, you've got him jousting at these windmills and he thinks they're big giants, <laughs> but it's all a, a distraction or perhaps that's too far to say. It's not completely a distraction. Right. It's an I overemphasis. Agree. And in fact, it may be to the left of his view that there's actually a real giant coming in a different form that he's not paying attention to. So obviously you're drawing upon the work of Marshall McLuhan, who we've already mentioned, and you say that there is this change of technology, obviously, that's happening. There is a philosophical change which is changing our perception of various things like time and space and the way we behave with respect to each other as we interact with that technology. But there is this subversive element to that change, which we may not really be aware of at all, but may be very, very important. Um, Could you talk us a little bit through some of McLuhan's ideas with regard to our perception of time and space, (laughs) the modification of our perception of those things with technology, and then move on to this idea of the subversion? Could, Could you give us some concrete examples to work with? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way that I look at it is the end result is how does media ecology be uh, exemplified in our modern world with the digital age, smartphone technology, all all this stuff that a lot of us are talking about. But Mm. in order to build that argument, I, I take a couple steps back in the realm of invention to try to get people to think about how life has changed now so that we can better understand how life will be changed in the future, if that makes sense. And it so, does indeed. Okay, so what McLuhan discusses a bit, which I kind of run off of, is you know various inventions. For example, if you take a look at the light bulb, okay? Mm. The light bulb comes around really in popularity, turn of the 20th century. And so the basic change here is, wow, it has artificial light. You know, We now have light. 
But the philosophical change of that would be that it is actually changing the work day and the school day. Prior to the light bulb, depending upon where you're on planet Earth, surely in the northern hemisphere in the UK and the northern portion of the United States, you know, by January, February, the factory has to shut down at four o'clock. The farm has to shut down when the sun goes down. But now with the light bulb, you know, we can continue our work. So we've just extended the day into whenever the employer wants, right? Hmm. Uh, I suppose, sorry to yeah. throw a spanner in the works, but I suppose you could say that really happened with the oil lamp before that, because I suppose you could have your factory working or even with candles. But I suppose there's a limitation to what you can do with candles, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. There's there's always a, there's always a, a gray zone, right? There's always this kind of transitional time period. So absolutely, candles, oil lamps, but the light bulb is obviously going to make it a lot yeah. more efficient, brighter, sure. and workable, right? And the same thing with a school day as a, a public school teacher. You know, I can give my kids homework and they can work till four, five, six, eight, nine o'clock, 11 o'clock at night if they really wanted yes, to, right? Yes. And the temptation well, is down there. Well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not a good thing, but it's, it's, the, it's the way of humanity. So, you know, when we're doing with this, I then say, okay, but what is this kind of subversive change that's going on? And so now for the first time in humanity in many regards, the, the dimension of time, which is obviously a dimension of physics, um, time as we know it has changed, right? Uh, we now can elongate the work mm. day. Um, so that would be an example of the light bulb. You know, I, again, this whole thing with, I mean, with centralized heat as well, you know, prior to centralized heat, you know, you got the coal stove, you got the wood stove, the family is huddled together. But now with centralized heat, we create the notion of independent space where my kids can go into their own room. I can move into my office, um, we're not huddled together. And so, you know, the subversive change that's sensed there is now that the dimension of space has been altered. And now we can have individualized space and we can also have individualized time. Uh, and so these are these subversive changes, which, you know, no one on planet Earth, uh, this is the power of it, man, is that no one on planet Earth is questioning the beauty of the light bulb today. No one is questioning the centralized heat, you know, yeah. um, but it augments society, it augments humanity. We now have privatized space where we're not together with our loved ones. It's very easy to do that. I mean, you and I right now, right? We're, we're secluded from our families yes. because of those inventions. Indeed. Yes, I'm sitting here in front of a lot of screens that are sort of shouting my isolation back at me. And I wasn't really thinking of that until you said it. But you're absolutely right. Of course, there are very positive things about what we're able to do here. But it has, in fact, changed things. You're quite right. I would be out with my family shopping at this very moment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the past. And, you know, essentially what happens is the people that were alive prior to the light bulb or prior to centralized heat may have some context or they do have a context of understanding. But all of us that are born into that age of the incandescent light bulb or all of us born into the age of centralized heat, we have no point of reference to what life was like prior to that. And so once all of the people pass away that remember that world, now, what I argue here is that we have now ushered into a new dimension, a new humanity that no longer remembers those days. And so I would say the same thing is happening right now as we speak with the technological revolution. Yes, I think that's a very interesting dimension there of thought. To when you say we are a new humanity because of this, I mean, I know that's that's almost a rather McLuhan kind of thing to say, isn't it? Because he was very sort of mischievous in what he, in what he would say to, right. to get you thinking about things. And I, I know I appreciate that. And I think you know to some extent this is a, a bit like that, is it? Because in a sense, our humanity hasn't changed, you know, biologically, but. It has done in the way that we look at the world and interact with each other. So if you take humanity in a broader context, if you were to define us more fully, then yes, indeed, that is right. Our humanity has changed. And if we continue that broader context into the future, then it may well be that our humanity is going to change in very, very dramatic ways that perhaps we can't even conceive of. I mean, one of the things I picked up from listening to Neil Postman was he was saying how very often these technologies start in one way and then they have consequences that nobody could even thought of and, and right. not even thought of. And he thought with one example he came up with that sticks in my mind is to do with the invention of the clock and how the monks would use that in the early days to regulate their prayers. They would have had absolutely no idea that this would have been central to the capitalist <laughs> economy. You know, without the clock, there's no way that the modern commerce could take place. Um, so that's an unforeseen change in our humanity in this broader sense of the definition that we're working with here. I mean, one thing I think of while I was thinking about 
you know, preparing for this interview, such, such as I was, I told you I didn't have very much time to prepare for this, but I was thinking of the motor car. We're so used to the motor car, it's something we take for granted, and I think we often think of it as a good thing, so we often think of it as a bad thing to do with pollution and that sort of thing, but, you know, generally as, as a blessing that we can get from A to B, and it's all very convenient, but actually... It's amazing to think just how our society is now structured upon the motor car and so many ways in which that is negative in the way it's changed our humanity. Because I live 250 miles away from my parents. I have to live where I do for work reasons. And yet I don't like that situation because I don't like the fact that I'm separated not just from my parents, but also from most of my family who lives in the Reading area, which is 150 miles away. Right. So it's, it's amazing just to see there in that example, something that seems to be a blessing mostly, and yet sets new initial conditions upon which societal structures are built, which have very significant negative consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would just take it to the next level of unpacking the subversive notion of the motor car. Um, you know, a couple things here. One, in the United States, 36,000 Americans die per year from car accidents. Wow, is it that many? Okay. Gosh, yeah. That many, that many. Now, 36,000 people in theory would be alive each year if there wasn't the car. But okay, maybe we can't get rid of a car, right? But you know, going 50 miles per hour, 60 miles per hour, what if we reduce the miles per hour to 20 miles per hour, right? And then, then you get in a car accident, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna die from it. But I'm using that kind of a stepping stone is of the subversive change is that you know, the speed of life has changed. Mm. So prior to the car, we're living in a, as has been said, a three mile per hour or five mile per hour world with the horse. And so everything is slower. I mean, what I'm getting at here is the culture dynamic is that you have a vehicle, a horse. Now everything is slowed down. Now you get a car, everything is faster. That's going to permeate into all other areas of culture. Mm. So we, we no longer live in a three mile per hour world. We live in a, maybe a 50 mile per hour world, but that's not even true because we live in a world where with technology and fiber optics, everything is completely immediate. And so now the subversive notion of is, what is this doing this to our minds, our souls, our bodies? Essentially, it's creating a world that is so fast that we expect and desire instant gratification. Um, and so this is going to now, the subversive notion of, of this, if we wanna take it to that, is you know it, where is the self-discipline where is patience? I mean, all of these things which allowed humanity to do amazing things, the notion of self-discipline, patience, foregoing instant gratification for long-term benefit, those things are like completely out the window. And so that's why I would say, you know, we go a little deeper in the McLuhan, Postman-esque kind of thing. And we say, all right, well, how has this kind of now permeated our, our culture? And I can't help to go forward without, you know, discussing one of my favorite theologians and philosophers. His name is Abraham Heschel. Uh, he's a, a Jewish Orthodox man coming out of uh, a Jewish theological seminary. Amazing man. And one of his works is entitled The Sabbath. And he discusses how time is actually a holy function. And the first time kadosh or holiness is used is in Genesis, where God says that the Sabbath, a day, time, is holy. And so we have this notion of time being a, a holy essence opposed to cathedrals and churches being holy. And I wonder, like, with this sped up time of instant gratification, we've in fact lost the notion of holiness in time. Time is no longer holy to us. It's just something that gets us to the next thing. What is now holy is my own personal pleasure, my own personal instant gratification. But the notion of a Sabbath, the notion of a day which is holy and time as we know it as holy being the most scarce resource that we have is no longer in our context. Mm, really interesting stuff. Um, there are some things that we need to sort of unpack here because we've got some Christian terminology going on here, haven't we? And in fact, sure, I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. We're, we're saying uh, holy here. So the essence of that idea is to be set apart, isn't it? Right. So uh, a time that is set apart from other times. So you were saying this is something that is a, a major thought within Judaism. And then you brought up the notion of the cathedral there. So this would be more of a Christian idea, which was related to a set apart space. Have I got you right there? Yeah. Heschel will make the argument that largely in Christianity, and you know, we can't 
paint broad brushes, but you know, essentially the notion of holy space, which I think today is now we have holy things, opposed to the original biblical view of having time set apart as a trigger of understanding for the understanding of essentially holy eternity, right? A holy Sabbath rest in the concept of of eternity in heaven. Uh, And so we're moving away from this holy time into what I think holy things. And we see today a society that is so wrapped up with purchasing and consumerism and buying things opposed to maybe carving out our time with our family, our friends, our God, our neighbors. And essentially, you know, this all comes back to the notion of humanity being changed. Mm. Okay, so we can actually directly relate those back to the examples that you drew from McLuhan. So we have the idea of the light bulb changing our perception of time. So there's no longer a sacred time. All times are the same. And central heating, there's no longer a sacred space. There's no special space. We can be wherever we want. We can be away from people. So there's this removal of the sacred, the separateness from our lives through this. And of course, when we get onto the modern technology, this seems to be speeded up so that everywhere is the same. I mean, you can access everything in the whole world now, can't you? Isn't every space the same and every time the same? It's all instant, as you you were saying before. So, I mean, this seems to be from your perspective, a kind of removal of the sacred from our time and space reality. I mean, we are time and space beings. We, If we're going to you know, instantiate the transcendent in our experience, well, we need to use time and space in order to do that. However, we do that by praying, by reading a Bible, by worshipping, whatever we're doing. We're doing all those things within time and space, communing with each other. And that element of the sacred, the otherness is being actually removed from our experience by these technologies step by step, but now particularly by the modern technology because it's to the nth degree. Would you go so far as to say that this is a divorce, a kind of divorce in the modern experience from spiritual realities that are there? Would you say that technology is actually accelerating this divorce of our experience from the actual spiritual realities that do exist. I think that it can, and for most of us it is. You know, as Postman would say, all of these forms of medium mm. are not necessarily bad. It's how we use it, right? Absolutely. But I would yes. I would agree with you totally. I mean, for example, I mean we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now, right, mm. without this beauty of technology. So there are positives, but there are very subversive negatives, but most people don't recognize them unless you take the pause to see. But the divorce of the of the reality, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, what what How I kind of phrase it is, I think a divorce might be a better way how you phrased it, but one way in which I phrase it is like a an evolutionary jump. And so what I argue is that for however long we've been on this planet, we have been human beings. We've received the God of I am, the verb to be, We have become human beings. Beings are ones that have self-actualized, if you will. They're ones who can ask the questions. They are sentient beings that know that they exist and know where they're going and what's kind of going on inside of the consciousness. And I believe that the digital realm has sped up the process where now we've made this jump from human beings to now human doings. Mm. And so now everything is so fast paced, our pleasure, our commerce is at our fingertips. And now we live this life of doing, 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 whether it's working longer at work, doing more studies for school, buying more things, surfing the internet. We're doing, and because we're always doing with our time, we no longer have the sacred time If you want to say a church or if you want to say a synagogue or a religious institution, hey, I'm with you. But even for those that are not religious people, they don't have time now to be wholly set apart to ask the questions of existence, the questions of being. Absolutely. So you can see that just simply in something like reading a book, can't you? If you're reading something that has just something vaguely philosophical about it, it could be a novel. But if you haven't got the time to sit and read that, then you're not going to introspect about your own existence. 
And so that is uh, an impoverishment of our being and part of this divorce from the transcendent. I, I totally agree with you. I want to come back to this business of being versus doing a little bit later because I do think that is extremely important, actually, and central to what we're talking about here. I just want to go back to uh, Neil Postman. You were He was saying that, you know, we must look upon technology as well as all being bad because I remember him saying that he was accused of being a Luddite, uh, that he was against all technology. And, of course, he would say that so that's not actually what the Luddite were they were not against all technology they were against the misuse of technology to you know to oppress workers so that's not quite the right analogy anyway but he was accused of being uh, a luddite and uh, i remember him saying that that's not really fair because it's not possible to be anti-technology technology is everywhere you can't get away from it it's just like saying you could you be anti-food well no you can't be anti-food you've got to eat food in order to survive but that doesn't mean you just eat everything it doesn't mean that you eat to excess you've got to choose what is the most nutritious food to eat you know i think that was actually very helpful technology is a fact of life but it does not mean that we should just embrace every single technology that comes our way uncritically and be unaware of how it might affect our humanity. So I think he has a very good point there. Um, this will, of course, take us on later to the question of what we may be able to do about this. Um, if we recognize the dangers of these technologies, you know, to try to harness them to our benefit rather than to our detriment. Right. We, we'll come back to that. So this business of being and doing, being versus doing, um, let's explore that a little more. So we're saying that just being, just being a human being and enjoying the fact of, of being a human being and introspecting and asking the big questions and not being concerned to be super active all the time so that we have that freedom. This is becoming increasingly anathema in the modern world. We've got to fill our days, we've got to fill our moments of silence with these clicks and noises that are coming from our iPad or our smartphone or whatever it is. Um, would you say that our identity now as human beings is increasingly wrapped up with what we do rather than who we are? I mean, what comes to my mind is, you know, when I, I meet somebody I've not met before, the first thing they'll say to me is, what do you do? And I always <laughs> yeah. resent that question because I think, well, that means you're only interested in what I am as a function, not what I am as a human being. Now, of course, I don't say, you know, how dare you say that to me because that would just be a ridiculous thing to do. But nevertheless, inside me, I do resent that. Do you think that is a real problem, that our identity is wrapped up now with what we do? I think it is a paramount problem, which is speeding up the revelation of us moving from being human beings. I, I really think 21st century man in the West we're no longer human beings. I believe we're not that anymore. We are now human doings. I think it's upon us. We're no different in many regards than the animal. I mean, if you take a wolf, what does a wolf do? It hunts, which is pretty much just the same thing as a, a mankind working. Uh, they hunt to get their food, to eat, to fill their bellies, and they procreate. What distinguished man from the animal was the fact that we are a being, right? We don't talk about animal beings. Humans are not just humans. They're human beings, right? We, we have the ability to stop, to think, to ponder. Uh, my dog upstairs doesn't do really do that. <laughs> uh, so there is that notion where we're kind of becoming like the animal, I, I believe. And so the, the concern here is I think it's very, very dangerous, particularly for men. I think men, women do as well, but I, I do think in large in our culture, men have this feeling of like, you know, I am a teacher, I am a professor, I am a worker, I make this much money. And there's this kind of notion of that's what we connect to. And I think it has very deep spiritual problems, you know, before anything else, right? We are sons and we are daughters of a heavenly father, mm. uh, right? And so that needs to be our identity. And if our identity is first that, then all other things can come out of that in a appropriate spiritual and holistically healthy way. Um, so it's 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 paramount. It's it's completely paramount to what is going on, and I don't think too many people are paying attention to that. We're paying attention to some of the the other windmills that are out there. In my humble opinion. I want to come back to this business of I think you said something like we're no longer human beings, which of course comes over as hyperbole, and that's absolutely fine. Right. I love hyperbole, <laughs> uh, but but it's I think you mean it as I mean it in this broader sense that we've been discussing. We're still biologically human beings, but if we understand ourselves in this broader social context, then I think you're absolutely right. Because I want to come back to that kind of example I was talking about. People say, "You know, what do you do?" Um, there have been times in my life when I've been unemployed. There have been times in my life when I've been, and I'm going to use this deliberately 
in inverted commas here, just a homemaker. We make these decisions or we find ourselves in these situations. And then when somebody says to you, what do you do? And you're in that situation. Now, I have felt this myself, and I'm sure this chimes with many people listening to this podcast. You feel somehow, oh, I'm not worthy. Right. I'm not quite on everybody else's level here. I mean, really, that's quite unacceptable, isn't it? That's a kind of definition of your humanity that's being imposed upon you by a social norm for all the reasons that we've been talking about. When, in fact, I'm standing there, I just happen to be unemployed at that moment, and I'm just as much a human being now as I was before. Right. So, I mean, this is a very powerful thing that's going on in the culture, and I think it's very important that we do find against that in, in whichever way we can. Um, I mean, I've personally been through so many different changes like that in my work life that, you know, I've learned not to take my value from those things. But it's still difficult, isn't it? When you are in a situation where somebody is using their particular value system, you imagine what they're thinking. You can't get away from that. Um, so it is powerful even if you don't identify with that way of thinking yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, the connection to that it was just when you were talking just reminded me of, of- some lessons and conversations I've had with various people. And that is, why are we asking each other, what do you do? And essentially it comes down to a basic economic lesson, right? In society, in a capitalist system, we ascribe a salary to various people. Essentially the way it works here is the the larger the salary you receive, it's because you are producing something for others that they want. So Bill Gates gets paid who knows how much money. And the reason why he gets so much money is because he's providing a a good or service that benefits humanity. So when I ask you, what do you do? In a very kind of philosophical economic sense, I'm asking you, how much money do you make and what are you doing to add to society? Then therefore, what are you doing to add to my pleasure? And if you're just a homemaker, well, you are not making any money and then therefore you're not providing a good or service to civilization that I can benefit from. Some of the people that get paid the most amount of money would be our celebrities, mm. people in film, people in sports. I mean, they, they acquire millions and millions of dollars. Why do we pay these people so much money? Because they're providing a good or service that we want more than anything else, right? What do we want? We want entertainment, which means that the the thing that we want more than anything else, I believe, is to get a cure for our boredom. Mm. Essentially, give me my pleasure, right? If you're staying home raising your kids, well, that's not doing anything for me, right? I mean, it is. You're raising good kids that are going to benefit society. But in our age of pleasure, yes. right? In our age of pleasure. And immediacy. Yes, indeed. They're right. going to be the citizens of the future. Well, who cares about the future? That's a long way off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what we want is what are you doing to provide, essentially, if you pare it down, how are you adding to my pleasure? So I, I kind of think that's that's kind of where we're going, if that, if that makes sense. I don't know. It does make sense. Yeah, there's a kind of moral dimension or an ethical dimension to that, which is a bit distorted, really. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, what about somebody who's a contemplative and spends their life in prayer? I mean, from a Christian point of view, why not? If somebody's called to that kind of work, mm. that really is very much being in the world. And one of the things that I think of that the Bible says is, you know, be still and know that I am God. I take that very seriously, that in our very center of our beings, the most important thing we are to be is mm. ones who are in relationship to God primarily, which is about being still knowing that he's there and doing everything that we do, in fact, do from that position of uh, of stillness. And how do we do that now, right? <laughs> well, exactly right. Um, I often refer to um, an essay by Bertrand Russell here. Ah. I'll do it again. Uh, in praise of idleness, and I've just got a little quote here that I love. Um, quote, I want to say in all seriousness that a great deal of harm is being done in the modern world by belief in the virtuousness of work and that the road to happiness and prosperity lies in an organized diminution of work. Now, <laughs> that's a very subversive thing to say in its own right, but I think that, you know, there's something to that. Uh, harm is being done, I think, by concentrating so much on making us doers rather than beers in the presence of the God who is there. Um, one thing I wanted to run by you was the notion about technology reinforcing constantly this message of doing and not being that maybe this is also an outworking of the predominantly atheistic, I don't mean atheistic, I mean atheistic 
worldview, sort of secular, atheistic worldview we seem to be in increasingly in the West, in which there is no sense of, to speak philosophically, there's no ontology. Everything is in a flux. Everything's phenomena. Everything's events. You can't really say anything is anything. You know, there's no transcendent. There's no God. There's no soul. If you wanted to talk in transcendent terms, there's no us, you know, we're a bunch of chemicals, molecules, or atoms in a flux. And even if you say, well, we're, you know, at the bottom, we're energy, but then you ask a physicist, what's energy? And they'll say something like, oh, well, it's the ability to do work. You know, they can't even pinpoint what it is, only right. what it does. <laughs> there's no being there either. So there's no ontology. So do you think that this concentration on the kind of technology that we're discussing here, that's all the bells and whistles, all the flashes in front of you, that's distracting you all the time, this is, if not a complete outworking of the worldview I've just described, it is consistent with it and is being fueled by it to some extent. Yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly true. Um, it's kind of like a, a self-propelled engine, right? So due to the fact that we want to seek pleasure, we will create more devices that create pleasure, uh, which then creates more of a culture that wants to seek pleasure. And so this is like the, the story of humanity, really, right? Essentially, you know, the curse of Adam and Eve. I mean, it's, it's essentially of that mankind wants to become gods, and so we remove ourselves from the thought process of being uh, to generate a narcissistic, pleasure-driven society. What is the end goal of man? In ages past, the philosophers would 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 be you know the the end goal is to r reach enlightenment, right? To reach understanding. Uh, the theologians would say that the end result of humanity is become one with God and to draw upon His essence and His understanding. But mankind has always had this theme of wanting to become their own God. When you say become one with God, you don't mean in a mystical sense there, do you? Do you mean you know, to be related to God? To have a, Yes, I'm sorry, to, 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 have, to have relationship with God. I apologize. No, no, no problem. There are so many new age ideas these days. We need to be very clear what we mean by these things. Yeah, to have relationship with God and, mm. and to grab his understanding, of course. Mm. And so, you know, obviously throughout the history of mankind, man has been on this great pursuit of wanting to essentially make ourselves gods. Uh, it goes back to the, the sin of the Garden of Eden. Mm. Um, I want to go back to that Garden of Eden story there, because there are elements of that that I think are widely misunderstood. And I'm not saying you are misunderstanding it for a moment, but I think we need to clarify. People often say, you know, it's the tree of knowledge. And so the, the sin was knowing more things. And I think that is a really quite a misunderstanding of what's going on there, because it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the narrative, they decide to do what is good in their own eyes. And it's that that the uh, serpent says, God knows that when you do this, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So there is this very definite sense of choosing what is good in their own eyes. And by doing this, they eat from one tree rather than the other. They're therefore not eating from the tree they're supposed to, which of course is the tree of life, represents the very life of God. So it's not about us wanting more knowledge. It's about us wanting more autonomy and to separate ourselves from the source of life, who is God. And I mean, if it's being speeded up to this extent these days, we're not having any time to think about our creator, then we are in danger of becoming more prone to the kinds of things that I was speaking to your our mutual friend, uh, Josh Wisely, the other week, transhumanism, because right. that offers a false and alternative form of mock transcendence, also offers this sense of being one with everything, there's no separate space, there's no separate time, possibly this delusion of being a, a master of, of, of your destiny. That does have a trajectory leading right back to that Garden of Eden story there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's essentially, yeah, I do not think that we're too far off from the notions of transhumanism uh, and, 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 and bringing this notion of technology computers and molding them with humanity. I think we're a couple steps away from that, but I agree with you that that's where we're heading. But as we get there, I think the thing that's going to be fueling all of this is the, the non-windmill. I think we may be missing a piece of what is going to fuel that. And I think what's going to fuel this is going to be our desire for the pursuit of pleasure. What's going to get us to that robotic world, right? It's not going to be like, oh, it's just the robots and this would be cool. It's going to, going to be how can our pleasure senses be filled by that new technology? 
Yes, there are several places to go with this. Um, one thing I wanted to do was to go back to the idea of the no ontology. I think that's part of it as well, because if we're not conscious of ourselves as human beings in the classical sense, there's no us, we're just doers, then why should we not be hooked up um, and become completely persuaded by the seeming magic of all this? Um, we won't see the dangers of it. I also wanted to bring the question to you as to how much of this you think is just the outworking of worldviews and the technology itself and economics, and to what extent you think any of this might be deliberately manipulated by elites. I use that word elites deliberately because I'm thinking of Aldous Huxley, who himself talked in terms of elites wishing to control. And of course, there we have, you know, a, a direct link there to his famous book, Brave New World. And this seems to be what we're discussing today, more of a connection with his way of thinking in as he allegorized in Brave New World, than we find in Orwell with 1984, a different way of looking at how the future might unfold. Do you want to say anything about um, Huxley and um, sure. Orwell and um, what that might presage for the future? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of us in the alt community, we kind of like to take on the the adoption of the uh, the George Orwell 1984 philosophy, right? That the government is going to become so large and in charge mm. that they're going to suppress our rights and, you know, the burning of books, not being able to think, not being able to question. And so that's been the very typical view of that's where we're going. But I think with the emergence of the technology uh, and the bringing together of humanity and that technology is better understood by understanding Huxley, right? Who's going to say, look, it's, it's not through fear that the government is going to control us, but it's going to be through the allowance of making pleasure more accessible. Mm. Huxley is going to say, it's not what we fear that's going to ruin us, but it's what we pleasure that's going to ruin us. And so I do think that the rulers of the age, the rulers of the world, I think they do see this. So if we can create a society where our pleasure-driven senses can be more tantalized by the technology, we will be so absorbed with the seeking of pleasure that there's going to be no need to question our government. There's going to be no need to question our religious leaders. There'll be no need to question anything because our entire focus is going to be on how can I receive more pleasure? What we see here is Huxley being manifested, I think. I mean, how really involved in the political process and spiritual processes can we be when we're, we're seeking our own pleasure all the time? There's no time or need to question the authorities. And I think it's a very, very eloquent and sly way of the enemies of, of the soul to do that. Uh, it's one of the most brilliant plans. Why should I tell you what to do when I don't have to tell you what to do or not to do? If I can just provide a format and a platform of pleasure, I won't even have to regulate you because you're not even going to care. And I think that's what we see happening with the, with the technology. Yes, and of course, we don't need to speculate as to what extent this is deliberate. I mean, there is an element of it which is, I presume, would just be merely opportunistic. You know, these technologies developing, they have a certain characteristic, they are going to serve our purposes. So we don't need to necessarily say that it's all absolutely planned to the nth degree for there to be an element of that. Of course, it may be all planned to the nth degree. I don't know. <laughs> I just wanted to quote from the oldest Huxley Berkeley, I think you say, don't you, over there? <laughs> Berkeley speech from, um, I can't say Berkeley, <laughs> um, 1962, because there's this just perfectly sums up what he's saying, essentially. So mm. let me quote here. It seems to me that the nature of the ultimate revolution well, with which we are now faced... It seems to me that the, the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, this is the, seems to me the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. And uh, this is a, this is a problem which uh, has interested me for many years and about which I wrote uh, 30 years ago a, a fable, The Brave New World, which is uh, essentially the account of a society making use of all the devices at that time available, and some of the devices which uh, uh, I 
imagined to be possible, uh, making use of them in order to, first of all, to standardize the population, to iron out uh, inconvenient human dis uh, um, differences, uh, to create, uh, so to say, mass-produced uh, models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system. And uh, since then, I have uh, con continued to be extremely interested uh, in this problem, and I have noticed uh, with increasing dismay that uh, a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true, that a, a number of techniques about which I talked seem to be here already, and that there seems to be a general movement uh, in the direction of this kind of ultimate revolution, this, this method of control uh, by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which, by any decent standard, they ought not to enjoy. Uh, this, I mean, the enjoyment of, uh, of servitude. So this is a, a method of control by which people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which, by any decent standard, they ought not to enjoy. That's quite chilling, actually. It is, and it's we're so we're so unbelievably there. So the question towards the end of our conversation here has to be: What can we actually do about this? Once we become aware that there is a problem, we can't just sit back, can we, and say, "Well, you know, it's all going to go away," because it is not going to go away. There's no doubt about that. The technology is going to become more and more powerful, more and more invasive. So, what do you do in your life, and what do you recommend to your students and your congregation? Oh, it's that is such a big question, my friend. Um, Sorry, and uh, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we raise questions and we hope that we have answers. Um, the unfortunate reality, I'm just going to hope I don't upset your listeners. Um, I don't mean to be so morbid, but I honestly, right now, I don't think we're going to be coming out of this. Um, I don't see a new Luddite movement. I, I don't see a new Amish movement, which we have in the United States. I don't even necessarily see a new hippie movement that questions the notion of commerce and consumerism and pleasure. I don't see it because it's been so deeply ingrained because you can pretend to be an alt thinker. You can pretend to be anti-institutional by just going to those websites, right? And by engaging in that. With that being said, <laughs> okay, okay. there are some of us that could make some steps. And so- Okay, let, let, before you get onto that, okay, yeah. I don't want to leave that completely negative because I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I really do. Um, however, that would be a way of making a preface to saying, yes, but there is an ultimate answer, of course. Maybe we are reaching towards the end of the end times. And when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ returns- well, that'll be a different matter. But, uh, <laughs> but but we are here. We are here, and there is a trajectory. And okay, I take completely what you say. There's, we, we we cannot fight this off completely. However, go on. There are some things that we can do. Yeah. However, we we as sons and daughters of a God that is a God of being, we need to do things to protect our soul, if you will. Yeah. And so I think that there are some practical things that we can do. One, I honestly do believe that we should reinstate some kind of holy time in our lives. You know, whether it's one day, if it's a Sunday Sabbath where we just completely unplug and we do not engage in commerce, if it's a, a Saturday Sabbath, if it's a Tuesday Sabbath, I don't know what it is for one's individual life. But I do believe that we purposely, very, very purposely, now more than any other time, we need to take time to stop, to unplug from it all. The world is too much with us, right? Um, we need to have holy time with our God, with ourselves, with our family. We need to implement it as a culture, if you will. And of course, this also applies to people who are not believers, isn't it? Obviously, they're not going to take time to be with the God who is there if they don't believe in the God who is there. Uh, but nevertheless, carving out time that is separate, carving out space that is separate, whatever you fill it with, fill it with family, fill it with reading. This is all important, isn't it? 
Yes, absolutely. And so one, we as adults need to model it to our children. We need to model it to the younger generations. We need to model it to other people. Mm. On a secondary uh, level, I believe uh, that in our school systems, you know, as a, as a public school teacher, we really, really need to take this as a human health issue. Mm. I think our public schools need to carve out time in the day or during the week to teach children the appropriate use of the technology, when it is appropriate, when it is not appropriate, how do we engage it? How do we work with it? I think that, you know, at least in the States, we have, you know, physical education classes, we have health classes. I think one of the most paramount things we need to do for our kids is to give them a media ecology class. We need to teach them how do we appropriately engage this medium while still maintaining our humanity. We need to do that. Uh, and like a tertiary kind of level, you know, as parents, I, I think we really need to fight the urge to hand over the iPad, hand over the television to our two-year-old or four-year-old just for them to be quiet. I think we really need yes. to make sure, hey, I'm not going to put the movie on. Hey, I'm not going to give you the game on the device because right now you need to be bored. You need to be bored and you need to figure out how to think and to create your own pleasure out of other devices. If we start there, uh, that could be a very powerful way to make sure that the next generation uses this. You know, I think that's what that's the essence of Postman. You know, these things are not entirely bad, but we need to develop the skills to appropriately engage the device. It is a complete human health issue. Yes. I mean, one of the biggest lessons has got to be turn it off. <laughs> I mean, we do, when I go to bed at night, I turn off the light bulb. <laughs> if I now have a smartphone, I've only had it a few weeks. Uh, it was a gift to me. But I have it turned off a lot of the time, deliberately. And that's difficult to do for many people. I mean, my daughter is in a situation where she is required to have an iPad for her schoolwork. Now, we don't like that situation at all. Um, she has to do homework on her iPad. And of course, that means then there's this kind of plausible deniability. You know, we can say to her, well, what are you doing? What are you, You're messing about on on YouTube, you've been on it for an hour, and she'll say, oh, well, I've got to do my homework. <laughs> so I do feel that the school has not been very helpful in that. And so maybe it will be important, as you say, within the schools to have media ecology lessons. Perhaps the teachers themselves should also have media ecology lessons to realize the dangers of this too. Absolutely. I, it's completely, in my opinion, paramount because it is changing the the, the matrix of society and as we are as human beings, as, as we discussed. Um, and so we need people to talk about it. Yes. Uh, we need people trained up in how to engage this new uh, media. Uh, and then the hard thing, the really, the really hard thing is to model it for our children. Absolutely. Uh, but see, that's what's so hard. The device itself brings such amazing pleasure at the biological and chemical level. I mean, we know that when we receive Facebook likes and updates and even text messages, that it literally releases dopamine in the brain. So we're essentially dealing with a generation of people that are, could be in fact addicted to the pleasure. You know, I know I do things in my life to try to create an element of self-discipline. And so if I can do something that is gonna give me pleasure, what if I don't do that thing right now just to train myself in the ways of pushing aside the fulfillment of pleasure? I mean, that's a very hard thing to do, but it, it is something that addicts need to do, right? They need to step away and say no to the drug that gives you pleasure. And so I think there are little things you can even do in your life. Maybe it's not technology, but what gives you pleasure? You know, I'm thinking, you know, after this podcast, you know, I got to go to the store and I need to buy something. What if I just say, you know what, I'm not going to do that right away. I'm, I'm going to wait till a little later on in the day to do that. It's such a small little thing, but it's a small little training mm. exercise to say, you know what, I, I can push aside my narcissism. I can push aside my pleasure center of the brain right now and not do that. And so I think these are little subtle things that we can do to keep us in check. Absolutely. Live deliberately. Don't just be swept along by what's happening. I totally agree. Um, Well, thank you ever so much for coming on the show, David. It's been a fascinating interview, as I expected it would be, having heard your previous uh, conversation with Josh. I think this whole area... I'll try to explain what I mean here. When I've been listening to uh, Marshall McLuhan, not so much Neil Postman, but McLuhan particularly, I found him very imprecise 
in what he says. And at times I've thought to myself, well, I'm, I'm not sure that I completely buy what this chap's saying. I'm, you know, I'm not sure I agree with this or agree with that, because he doesn't seem to pinpoint things very definitely all the time. However, I came to realise that what he was trying to do, and he, he said very clearly in one of his presentations, that he was trying to be provocative. He was deliberately saying things, overstating things, and making connections that were perhaps not completely justified all the time in order to get people thinking about these very important issues. Right. And that's a particular way of lecturing that I've come across very, very rarely. And I do appreciate actually what he was trying to do with that. You know, you know, there's an initial reaction. What's this guy talking about? <laughs> yeah, but by doing that, you know, I've thought to myself, what's he talking about? It has actually worked upon me. So I must read some of his material. No doubt it, it follows the same kind of technique. Um, I know. He's, he's, he's uh, tremendous. So, so what I wanted to, the reason why I was saying that was because I think people may be feeling that some of what we talked about here is a bit like that as well. It, we've sort of been talking about almost everything under the sun from this perspective, <laughs> and it may seem a little bit vague at times, but that is the nature of the beast. We're talking about very concrete realities in very subjective and philosophical terms, and also projecting forward into possible futures. So it's all very speculative, but it's all very important. And so if people listen to this podcast, and hopefully don't turn it off, taking your advice to turn things off, um, if people listen to this podcast and come away thinking, well, I'm not sure that I followed everything there, but it's got me thinking about the problems that are there and the problems that may be coming in the future, then I think this conversation will have served its purpose in a very McClure-esque kind of way. And that suits me absolutely fine. Thank you ever so much, David, for coming on the show. It's been a delight. And I look forward perhaps one day to having another chat with you. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. And uh, I hope that the information uh, suited us all well, even if it was in a little bit of a cryptic fashion. So uh, thank you very much for having me. It, was, uh, it really was a blessing. 